If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. By subscribing, you will get early access and free downloads. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live here on Revolution.radio, the greatest of free speech radio networks. You can help them out by going to Revolution.radio and find a way to contribute and kick in. And you can help me out by going to my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com and subscribing. You get all kinds of early access to various things, including these very shows. Well, let's move on to our second hour guest, Matthew Crawford, who has just published a couple of really good articles. Well, all of his stuff is, is pretty good, but I think his, his last couple of items have been uh, really outstanding. I, I invited him on a week or so ago to talk about his grand unified theory of the FTX disaster. That was a great elaboration on the notion a lot of us had had right right away. You know, the impression that this may have been a, an attack on crypto, an attempt to rein in crypto. And then uh, Matthew just put out an article today on Stu Peter's chaos, credibility that died suddenly about this film, died suddenly, that definitely seems to have some problems. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I did see a couple of excerpts. So these are both really, really good pieces, and I'm honored to bring on Matthew Crawford. So, hey, welcome, Matthew. Good to have you back. Thanks, Kevin. I'm uh, glad to be here. So where should we start? Should we start with FTX or Died Suddenly? <laughs> uh, you know, these are both huge topics. Um, you know, uh, FTX is really the bigger one, though, um, because I think that this is I, – I think that it is a play for all the chips globally. Uh, you know, I think ultimately um, – uh, there, you know, there, there are just huge earthquakes going on in the financial world, and I think that um, leadership has been preparing. I say leadership. Uh, I'll say the um, the military banking complex. And I'll come back to that terminology um, at some point. Uh, they've been preparing for the end of the dollar era for a while, I think, and it, it was already getting tense. Uh, there was a book uh, published in around. Uh, 2012 by James Rickards called Currency Wars, where he talks about uh, how he, uh, you know, was at the Pentagon for what were like the first ever, you know, financial war game scenario running, simulation running. Um, and he even, you know, he mentions in the book, um, well, and, and he testified before Congress, I think, in, in 2009 about this. But, you know, he mentions in the book um, about, you know, uh, Russia dumping treasuries and buying gold. And, of course, we saw that begin in 2018. Um, or maybe even it even started a little before that, but you know they they really dumped in 2018 uh, almost all their treasuries. <clears throat> so, you know, it, it feels like you know, we're heading into some sort of like a, a global world war in a sense, even if it wasn't like the the same type of thing as World War One or World War Two. Um, there, you know, there's been more and more you know movement in terms of other nations wanting to create their own reserve currency, and now we have the BRICS block forming. But, you know, what what the, you know, the military banking complex didn't really know quite back then was what Bitcoin would be. And so it's a, a three dog race in a sense. Mm -hmm. 
And, yeah, this has led to a lot of, um, I think, very quick moves to try to capture that industry. And it's been going on for years. You go back to 2016, and, and MIT was, you know, publishing research on how you might be able to capture the miners and regulate them. Um, but you know, Bitcoin is so resistant to to regulators um, that I, I think they're they're probably making multiple moves. But I think this one in particular is very interesting. You know, we've got this kid Sam um, Bankman-Fried, and I actually um, I, I have some experience with his circle because I taught a couple of them. And I'm not going to go into details about that because these were they were kids. You know, uh, they were teenagers when I taught them, um, or, or younger. Um, but you know, they, they are not of the age to have the experience in world affairs to, I, I think, to understand the position that they were in. They were probably told plenty, but it's still probably, it, it, you know, they were probably not capable of feeling the gravity of it, in, in my opinion. But so, they, you know, just hearing Sam Bankman-Fried's answers and in interviews, it's clear that he didn't know enough to know what was going on, right? There's no way that he was the head of this. There's no way that it was just, you know, some sloppy 20-somethings so, so who you, were you allowed think he, to play. He was like playing, play. kind of playing dumb in, the, in his interviews. Well, I, I do think that there is an element of him playing dumb in the interviews, but it's also true that this thing that was being created was too big for him, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what we know is that there were scores of, you know, uh, Shell, LLCs, corporations um, within this network. And, you know, when we think about who the players are, we have, um, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried, his, his parents, uh, you know, people say, oh, they're, they're Stanford, you know, law professors, right? That, that's, that's one key sign is when your resume begins with your parents, you know, that there's, you know, there's something wrong with being the, the big man billionaire. Well, he, but he wasn't still he living in their basement. He was down in the Bahamas. <laughs> well, it, it, and it's not just that they were law professors. These, you know, if you put together a short list of tax compliance experts in the entire world that you can count on one hand, they may be two of those fingers. Hmm. Okay, so they're probably so, pretty connected. You know, yeah. yeah, they're probably pretty connected. And, and Carolyn Ellison's father is the chair of the economics department at the number one economics school in the world, which is MIT, which is happens to be where Sam Bankman-Fried went to school. Um, and it was there that he was recruited into effective altruism also. So we, we have this you know web network of major players. And I think that effective altruism, I think that we're that uh, people like Whitney Webb, she's investigating um, uh, uh, McCaskill, who was the the founder of all that and you know he, he has a weird background that he seems to be obscuring as much as possible and we've seen things like uh, Lex Friedman pull his interview of um, McCaskill and so you know th there, there's something there I think there's there's we're going to find out that that they're connected on a you know a very you know power level to some you know major players in the military banking complex somewhere so I think that um, that what FTX and Alameda were were kind of like the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve, where you can have one entity that was going to perhaps grow. I, I, I think of it as like trying to get the kite to fly, uh, while the other one, um, you know, is a liquidity engine can take on all the losses. 
right? To make you, know, you have one entity that will all that will look outstandingly healthy, and then it can print its own token, this FTT token, which you know it becomes its its currency. Just you know, people sometimes you know sort of refer to a company's stock as its currency. You know, um, and it, it's sort of colloquial, but it, but it's meaningful, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's the basic uh, fiat I, I, currency scam, you know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, but it, what, you know, the thing is, if if the fiat currency is connected to the world's most powerful military, then it's the fiat currency that people have to use, right? That's why I refer to the military banking complex. They go hand in hand. Your um, your seniorage tax that you get from printing the money. And having it, you know, at, at what I call the empire node, or the master node, or whatever, it, it, that sucks value away from the rest of the world. And you know, it's that with which you pay the military. So the military needs, uh, you know, a, a, a twin. It, it needs the banking com- the center, banking complex, mm-hmm. in order to function. Um, either that, or there has to be some sort of, you know, very large scale restructuring of the way military works in society. But I think. You know, we we may literally be entering an era in which um, the nature of military changes completely, and and I, I certainly hope that that we move into an era in which the national militaries are far far smaller, or the militaries that exist are far smaller. That could happen, but you know, the the DoD, you know, certainly they they want to remain connected to the healthiest financial industry. So I think that that um, all this is going hand in hand with the pandemic. I think the pandemic was i mean it, it it's a real thing but it was a it was a smokescreen for the attempt to take over what looks like most likely is going to be the world's new financial system which is cryptocurrency and it can happen multiple ways it can happen with something like bitcoin which is a decentralized cryptocurrency or it can happen with central bank digital currencies or it can happen with this ftx alameda thing right if ftx um you know, FTX or possibly Tether, you know, the major stable coin, um, you know, either one of those could have been the engine propelling um, the old military banking complex to be able to, you know, sit on the new throne, so to speak. And Tether happens to have some interesting connections. Um, it, it is the dominant stable coin, but there was a competitor growing. And this competitor, uh, you know, there's a, uh, a young cryptocurrency entrepreneur about the same age as Sam, um, Nikolai Mushagian. And he was recently found dead in the ocean on the 29th of November, of October, excuse me, um, after tweeting out that he was being pursued by a CIA-backed child sex trafficking ring. And this is really interesting because, you know, I mean, the the day later, and it's just, it's gone uninvestigated. And then he he washes up on the beach, and then it's ruled a suicide by going for a very long swim, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, after saying that you're, you know, one day you're going to be tortured and murdered, and the next day showing up dead in the ocean. Next day take a long swim. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just, it's absurd that um, there's no further investigation, but when we think about it, he could have been a player who upset the apple cart of FTX Alameda by helping perhaps Coinbase. Yeah, it is. well, it sounds like it, because have, have you looked into him a little bit? He sounds like, you know, he, he shares your kind of uh, desire to make the world better through crypto. You know, he has that, that vision of a, of a fairer uh, currency system. 
And somebody like that who had that those principles and was in a position to actually be doing something um, might be dangerous. Yeah, he he really was uh, very idealistic. Uh, he he you know one of the more idealistic people in the space who wanted Satoshi's vision to succeed and and to be able to participate in doing things to you know um, you know further other pieces uh, perhaps. But yeah, uh, he, he seemed like a good kid. When you watch him give give talks. Um, you, you can just see it, right? He's not the person who went and practiced in the mirror to become the most eloquent speaker or to become the the most um, you know dynamic magnetic personality in the industry. You can see that he was always just trying to be you know um, follow his you know his passions and interests, right? He you know he, he's he's the kind of nerd that succeeds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he so so. This it, it it looks that it, you know in some way this is all being designed to try to rein in crypto, get it under the control probably of the cartel, this banking military uh, complex that you've written about. And can you fill in any more details about precisely how that would work? Well, uh, so regulation can take many many forms, right? I mean, ultimately, I think that that the attempt is to cast some sort of governance body over the industry and you know how that happens i don't know i mean you know if you'd asked me three years ago can the who you know create um enforce a vaccine passport world i would have said you know by what authority but you know things are things have grown very weird they don't need no stake in authority anymore do they well (laughs) one one way to look at the world is is to ask the question how many independent nations are there really yeah Right. And and the moment you ask that question, you know, can you make a list of five? Can you even get to five? <laughs> right. It's actually very yeah. tough yeah. to know, you know, um, what, what these we, we can we definitely know that, you know, um, I think, yeah, uh, the, the World Bank or the IMF can go into a nation and, you know, the money that rolls in is dependent on who's the leader. Right. They can choose leadership you know, in so many different ways, they can, you know, um, they, they they give out these loans and then they can short the currency of the nation and really squeeze, you know, the people there and, and enforce decision-making. Um, sometimes you can even send in, you know, you can send in the CIA paramilitary. This which, is what John Perkins and, is writing know, about. Confessions of an economic yeah. hitman. Yeah. Um, they, they've got a lot of tools at their disposal. Um, it's clear that there are still some nations that have some internal authority, but, you know, to the extent that it's still kind of, you know, balancing internal and external. You know, I, I keep wondering about Saudi Arabia and, you know, I, I wonder if uh, like the, you know, the Vegas shooting might have even been an assassination attempt uh, of, to, uh, to see if, uh, MBS. Oh, really? Huh. He, he was there in plain clothes. You mean you're talking about the, what, 2017 Vegas shooting? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And it was uh, it was a year later that um, uh, he that uh, K- uh, Khashoggi was murdered. It was a year to the day later. Huh, sending a message, maybe. Possibly, you know, Khashoggi very well, and we know that that Khashoggi's uh, uncle, the arms dealer, right, worked with uh, you know U.S. military, right. Mm-hmm. So the relationships are there for MBS to be very suspicious of Khashoggi in the first place. Right. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, he, he has shown himself I, I guess I, independent these, the past uh, this past year. Um, that's he seems to be challenging the uh, the banking 
the military banking complex of the West. Yeah, very possibly. And, and that could be the reason to consolidate power, right? If, if everybody, if all the, the relatively independent leaders or everybody in the world who, who has, you know, some access to knowledge of what's going down, right, that the dollar is going to collapse at some point, that there are a lot of moves being made. Let's say that you are one of those independent nations, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia. If you are going to survive with your independence, what do you do? You consolidate power. And that's exactly what we've seen over the past five years. And, of course, that's why we have the propaganda in the Western media telling us these are evil authoritarian regimes, you know, dictatorial kinds of Hitler-style uh, regimes that we have to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even over in Iran, when the, when the pandemic first came, um, it, it strikingly killed a core of leadership in yeah. one area of Iran. Yeah. Yeah. And call them the so, Holy city. That's the base of the clerical leadership. And uh, I actually, I think I learned about that from uh, Ron Unz. I, I haven't um, read all his, his, um, you know, discussions, but I, I do take notes every time I go to anybody's website to, to, you know, add to my pieces of knowledge. But anyhow, um, yeah, I, I think that, that the, the efforts were underway and I even have um, evidence of like, I knew in 2019 something was coming just from the way all of my finance contacts, all the you know people that I knew from Wall Street, VCs that I talked to. I had a, um, a business plan at the time that I was shopping around, and you know, everybody began acting very weird. <laughs> and uh, and you know it, it felt you know when it, when I saw the repo markets collapse, I thought, well, okay, you know that's the beginning of a, a new era in the world. Um. And then, and then we have the pandemic. So, you know, I think that it, the pandemic was probably a controlled, released, low-grade bioweapon, uh, and and it could be a higher grade than than I know. Like I, I leave that question open because there are some people who say, well, it's going to mess with fertility. You know, it's going to you know have these you know longer-term effects. And I I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, you'd have to be deep into biology to even begin to explore these things, especially because we can't even, we, you know, independently, you can't even get into labs much, right? Um, to You can't get into labs to test the vaccines. You can't get into, um, you can't get into just a, the, the database in which um, the um, uh, sequences are held to know, you know, how much shenanigans might be going on there. And in fact, the guy who tried to push for that database to be opened up, uh, open source, uh, he he died mysteriously. Yeah. Yeah, who, I think who was he was that? like in his thirties. I can't remember his name. He was he was Johns Hopkins guy, but he was you know, publishing um, publicly pushing to open up the database. So maybe he knew something. Interesting. So you know, it, it, I, I think the pandemic is a piece of the larger picture of the military banking complex trying to trying to uh, you know take over the world essentially. And that there there were two paths, I think, for FTX Alameda. One of them was just to fly the kite and you know, maybe maybe always be able to jettison losses to one of the organizations that picked up because they aggressively bought other organizations, right? And you know, they may have been looting these organizations as they bought them, but in the same way that Alameda, you know, was big enough to be able to take on trading losses, you know, it's like, you know, if you have a trade and, and it's, it's going to go bad um, if it goes more than a certain amount, instead of having a stop loss order, you just have another entity that props it up for you to get out of your trade. And then it takes the loss. And even if it eventually goes bankrupt, 
you know, if you've flown your kite long enough, if you're by far the largest entity in the space, then suddenly you, you know, you're de facto the king. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pumping all your losses into other entities that can just go bankrupt seems like kind of a winning strategy. I'm surprised maybe more people don't do that or maybe they do. Well, part of it is that the crypto world is different for this reason. You have all these currencies, all these tokens. Um, in in the the regular fiat currency world, like it is true that all these fiat currencies don't really necessarily have an exact value, but the the sort of economic pressures that they bump up against do not have as much leeway as in the cryptocurrency world. In the cryptocurrency world, you have some of these coins that they will never be worth anything. You know, ninety five percent of these business plans, if not more are either bad plans or they were just scams to begin with. And you get some trades going at a certain level that might even be a million times what the actual utility, you know, if you want to try to measure it, might be. And then, you know, you create an image. But when the market begins to, you know, when the liquidity begins to come in, if you're just selling into the liquidity, then you're canceling it out. And then there's, you know, it's always just air on both sides, no matter what happens. And so you see them, relative to Bitcoin and even relative to the dollar, just go down, 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 down until they disappear. And that has happened with hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands already of cryptocurrencies. And so, you know, there, there, there is no value in a lot of these things. I, I, I am a believer that there's value in Bitcoin, that there is, you know, there's a defined scarcity. There is a certain amount of security that has been built up through the, the hashing and through the, you know, you, you have to, um, you, you can't decrypt. You can't uh, break the encryption. It would take all the energy in the sun and then some. Um, so it, it is a matter of unwinding all the energy that has been put into the hashing process. So, you know that that provides this stable thing um, that you know uh, serves fundamentally as something that other people can't get at uh, if you have the password, right? So, you know, and, and it has defined scarcity. That defined scarcity alone. And people go, well, other cryptocurrencies can be like Bitcoin, therefore you can, you know, create more of it. No, you know, Bitcoin isn't just the currency, it's the network. You have, you know, these, you know, millions of mining machines around the world that are constantly performing the security and nothing, nothing else in cryptocurrency has that kind of a network. So the network is out there. It's part of the value of it. There are, you know, 100 something million people with some Bitcoin. Um, and, and, you know, the value of a monetary network is the value is in proportion to the square of the number of users. That's Metcalf's law. And it, you know, it wasn't previously applied to networks that way, but it applied to Facebook and Tencent historically. And I think that those are you know, the, the easiest analogies to hold. But all these, all these other things, you know, there's barely any of them have any real utility. And therefore, you can play games on the books in a different way. I hmm. I it, it sounds like that whole sector is uh, is so uh, well. If if the vast majority of uh, of cryptocurrencies are destined to just uh, you know to go poof, that whole sector then would be uh, the uh, kind of quote unquote wait, begging for for regulation, right? I mean that it's it's kind of almost a setup where if the yeah. you know if they want an excuse to come in and regulate crypto that it shouldn't be very hard to generate one. And maybe that's kind of what FTX was. It, it is It is a big setup. I mean, basically, you know, Bitcoin is fundamentally different than all of the others. 
and and all of the others sort of you know they masquerade as being something similar when they are really actually more like just fiat and you know it, um, by conflating these things and having them trade at the same exchanges um it creates the um the appearance that you know if if one of these things needs to be regulated because it's it's a total farce then the other one needs to be regulated wow so right? so, so, so if you want to do a psyop to go after bitcoin you would you would blow up some you know you you you'd, uh, create some big spectacle like we just saw with ftx yeah absolutely and you'd spend years you know you'd create something like ethereum which is programmable and can spit out these other currencies and then you would just spit out thousands and thousands of them and that's exactly what's happened Wow. And interestingly enough, you know, when you look at the um, the creator of Ethereum, uh, Vitalik, um, he has connections to MIT. Um, they actually published this like this. Uh, it, it's really clever. You, know, you have to you have to really know your math to find the error in it. But um, he he published with some people from MIT, I think 2017, 2018, this paper that said that Bitcoin can't go above ten thousand dollars in actual value. Of course, you know, we've seen it blow by that and go up to around seventy thousand. Um but yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting web that surrounds MIT in particular. So you know, I, I mentioned Carolyn Ellison's father, um, the chair of the department, and <clears throat> also going on at MIT is a lot of stuff surrounding the pandemic. And I'm sure you've heard FTX funded a lot of um, you know, research during the pandemic, like research uh, you know, that that helped put down ivermectin that was using half the dose that you know. The FLCCC was using, for instance, right, um, and only dosed for three days. But yeah, whatever. I think we're, uh, we're all mass on the show talking about that. Yeah, and and they fund um, funded research that helped uh, sink hydroxychloroquine, and and you know. But other than that, um, you know, let, let's take a look at MIT. You know, what the, there are these other connections at MIT. Of course, you know, I've mentioned multiple that have to do with cryptocurrency, but that's also where. You know, a lot of this really scary research um, regarding uh, gene drives has been taking place. And we see the major powers, you know, involved in that. We saw uh, Jeffrey Epstein funding MIT Media Labs, and he was funding it on behalf of Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. that answers the question, you know, why did Bill Gates continue to have a relationship with, with Jeffrey Epstein? You know, I mean, you know, people talk about the sexual es- escapades, but Whitney Webb does a good job of explaining that that's that's the media not wanting to tell you about the financial side of the story. But I think also the media doesn't want to explore the science side of the story. And over there at MIT and Harvard, right next door to each other, um, that's where the gene drive technology um, has been uh, developed. So, and so fact, what is gene drive the, technology? Okay, so um, I'll go ahead and say this. Uh, I'm not I'm not, um, you know, bioengineer enough to describe this, uh, you know, completely or well. I've done some uh, superficial reading. Um, what I, uh, I I can't explain it this way. It, it it involves CRISPR technology, where you know you're inserting a change into a species, but it's not just into one at a time. Um, it's a change that that gets you know passed through the species. And so let's say that you make all of the um, insects impotent. Now, all of the the mosquitoes. I, I believe this is going on in Florida right now. Um, this is like uh, maybe the first use of this technology. Um, is that they're they're trying to uh, make all the mosquitoes infertile, so that they can you know stop malaria. Yeah, no, that that's already been used for a couple of years in different places. Yeah. 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 And and of course, this is the happy face on the technology. You know, the unhappy face is you know anything goes wrong, you can make a species extinct. 
Yeah, well, so, especially if they're population know. reductionists. Uh, <laughs> if you can do it with mosquitoes, why not people? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder if there is some sort of a, you know, protection from this. And, um, and I think that may be the case. I, I, I personally think that there's an antidote to SARS-CoV-2 and that it's actually not even that complicated. We're just uh, intentionally not going after it. Um, there was a researcher at Pittsburgh named Bing Liu. I don't know if you heard the story. Mm, I think I it was like April of 2020, he announces, and I, I may have the date slightly wrong, maybe a few weeks before, a few weeks after, I don't know, March through May, somewhere in there, he announces that he has a cure for COVID. And the next day or maybe later that night, he's gunned down in his apartment. And it is very quickly chalk, chalked up to a lover's quarrel, though the people who worked with him, and I, I know somebody who worked there at the time, people who worked there with him were like, oh, he had a girlfriend? Like, <laughs> you know, there was no real, like, you know, knowledge of of anything that you know, that, that made it make sense that yeah, way. Yeah, lover's quarrel and with his imaginary I, girlfriend. Well, um, yeah, I, I guess there, there was a uh, another Chinese... Um, gentleman who shot him and went to his car and shot himself. So it's, it's one of those. Sounds kind of uh, MK Ultra-ish. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so, uh, well, what was he working on? Well, specifically, he was working on um, small protein inhibitors, or what are called sometimes uh, um, peptide inhibitors. Um, and this is a technology that that the U.S. specifically stopped working on at the beginning of the pandemic, but China continued to work on. And um, and in fact, it, it connects to one of the people who's on the Proximal Origins paper. And I can't remember this guy's name. Um, and I've talked about this with my friend uh, J.J. Cooey uh, a few times, but I've got uh, too, too much information to remember. <laughs> um, but there, there's an LSU researcher whose last name is Gallagher. And he, and he was, uh, you know, one of the pioneers of this, you know, the small protein inhibitor technology. And it would, and, you know, what this is, like, just imagine a smaller, I guess, you know, we call something a peptide if it's, like, just a few amino acids. And we call it a protein if it's, like, dozens or hundreds of amino acids. So imagine something that may be, like, 20 or 30 amino acids, but it's it's built specifically to to, you know, just be a magnet for one particular thing, like, let's say, SARS-CoV-2. So it would, you know, it would be the thing that would be, you know, you'd put it in your blood and you'd be fine. And when, it, when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, well, this is, this is uh, like uh, worth um, battlefield technology, as in, you know, let's say that you've got troops on two sides of a battlefield. Well, you just, you know, you dump, you know, you spray out some uh, coronavirus to make one side weak. You know, even if it's not going to like kill them, you know, they, sometimes they call these like, um, like ethical weapons or, <laughs> or or whatnot, but you give your side the antidote. You give them the small, you know, small protein inhibitors. Mm-hmm. That, that's similar to what they actually were planning to do to Cuba back in the early '60s. There was a plan. I, I think the Judith Miller and those people wrote this up in the book Germs, but it's it's been treated elsewhere as well. That this plan was pretty far along, and you know, not they were re- really going to do it, and it would have involved hitting Cuba with I forget which pathogen. And the uh, the American invaders would have been uh, immunized and protected, and they estimated that it was going to kill something like ten or fifteen percent of the Cuban population only. So it was sort of an ethical way to totally disable the entire Cuban population, so that we could go in there and, and take over with minimal bloodshed, only killing fifteen percent of the population of the island. <laughs> 
Right, minimal bloodshed on one side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it undoubtedly they they think this way. <laughs> yeah, and so so if SARS CoV two might actually have these bad long term effects, maybe on fertility or maybe on other things. I wonder if part of the reason that China is seemingly you know sabotaging its own economy and its own political stability to a certain extent, we're seeing this past week with these draconian lockdowns and the zero COVID policy might be that they know this and that they're betting on developing some of these peptide magnets in time to save the day. Maybe I haven't decided what I think of what's going on in China. China is so difficult, right? Um, I, you know, years ago on wall street, I was an Asian bond trader and um, I, I had, you know, a few real good connections, including one with, um, you know, the former royal family of Japan. And, and you know, I, I would, as much as I asked people about China, I always felt like nobody really knew, <laughs> you know, and, and when you can get, you know, deep connections, you know, um, and, and, and nobody really has confidence in their answer as to what China is, uh, you know that there's more than meets the eye. And it's I, a history I wrapped in an enigma. Well, um, yeah, it, reading through the history of China, um, I, which I've done more over the past like six years or so, I've read a lot more history than I used to. Um, you, know, you know, the opium wars happened and the West knocked down the East, right? Um, the West had built up, you know, the West had been behind the world, really. I mean, you know, of course, we know going back 2000 years, you know, what is Europe is behind Africa. It's behind, you know, the Middle East. It's behind Asia. Um, you know, somewhere along the way, um, they, they got boats. Um, you know, they, well, they'd, they'd advance some, right? Europe, Europe wasn't like way behind most of the world by you know the 1500s. But when they got boats that could travel around Africa and, you know, they, they knew that trading, that that their good futures, you know, domineering futures, dominating futures were dependent on trade. They just they they recognized the powers of uh, of capitalist supremacy before any other part of the world did. And I mean, and that's not exactly true. I mean, certainly different areas of the world understood capitalist supremacy for their era, but in the era of of the you know quick boat fleets and knowing all the routes and um, you know they got it at the right time and and a century earlier you know China had burned their fleets right the treasure fleet and they weren't building that for mass trade anyway but Europe needed it Europe needed the spice right uh, I mean you know have you, have you ever tasted uh, you know food from the, the UK before spice got there oh it's awful and with no refrigeration <laughs> it was probably even worse. Yeah, I mean that that must have been a bleak existence. <laughs> but, uh, UK but, food is bad yeah, enough, but unrefrigerated, oh boy. <laughs> well, you know, but one way or another, you know, they they paid you know twenty to a hundred times for things like you know uh, curries and salts and and you know whatever you might call it masala. Um, so they got around and they started trading you know uh, salts and silks and jade and and whatnot. But you know, by the 1800s, the, the corporations that developed in the 1600s being divorced from national governments, right? Europe had done away with slavery. You know, almost everywhere in Europe had done away with slavery for centuries. But then suddenly you have these corporate entities that can go create slave colonies anywhere they want to go. And they can use divide and conquer tactics. And they did. And they set up colonies everywhere. And you know, China was a tough opponent, though. You know, so they mostly peacefully traded with China. But at some point in the 1800s, you know, they had 
realized what they could do importing um, you know, opium uh, to 10 to 20 times the amounts that China had previously imported. Um, yeah, they really just took over Bengal to produce as much as they could. So they go in, um, they extract a lot of wealth from this this sort of weird degenerate middle class that that would buy up the opium. And that way, uh, Britain didn't have um, wasn't exporting all its silver to China. Now it's importing silver, but when it just it you know really just flattened China in the two opium wars. So you know you get to the early 1900s and the last Manchu emperor. Um, uh, gives way in 1905, 1906, when it was like the six-year-old kid. Or was it 1912? Uh, was he born in 1906? I, I don't know. Yeah, I forgot. I saw Anyhow. that movie a long time ago. The but last got emperor. The, the yeah. 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 Pinyu, I think his name was. And uh, and so you've got this um, era of sort of, you know, free-floating China. You know, what is it going to be? You know, you've got the nationalists. You've got the communist uh, influence coming in from the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union itself, it's like, what is what is the communist empire there? I mean, you know, J.P. Morgan sent people over there to kind of try to control that Bolshevik revolution, right? So there's always this question of, did the bankers really take control of communism? I, I was and discussing that with Reed, they... Reed Sainsbury in the first hour, actually. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think this is why China is so hard to understand. We know that... Um, that you know, Mao continued to like he, what he took money from the cigarette companies, and we know that there are very weird relationships that are hard to explain with the narrative history. Like, you know, the Dalai Lama was born in China, not Tibet, while his brother was uh, connected with the CIA. Uh, his tutors were handpicked by Mao Zedong. So, you know, who's the Dalai Lama? Who's Mao Zedong? You know, what is really going on with this leadership selection process? Right. So. Of course, we do have multiple successions of leadership since then, and things can change at each point of the way. But right now we have Xi Jinping, and you know he came from a life of trauma where his parent he, – he had to watch his parents being tortured, right? I mean his parents were early Mao communists, but they were also at that level at which you know, if Mao got upset with you, you, know, you were going to be humiliated and pay the price. So who, you know, we, can can you possibly reach into the mind of, of somebody who grew up that way, who's now leader of China? Well, you know, look over in Shanghai, you know, you've got, you've got a powerful group of people there. I wonder if if it's even possible for China to steer this era without breaking into the two nations or, or, or possibly breaking into civil war or something, because there's going to be economic stress when you've got 1.4 billion people and you have to import as much um, um phosphate right for for scale farming um as they as they do in 2008 they bought like they, they pushed up the price of phosphates worldwide by like double <laughs> you know like they were preparing right i mean i i think all the big nations knew that that after the mortgage bond collapse that that was going to be the beginning of the end of the dollar so you know, there's a lot going on. It would be so complex to penetrate, but you'd really have to know how much the Western banks have control. And you, you may even need to know something, you know, did the West come and make a deal with China? You know, do this vaccine thing with us. If these things do cull population, and I don't have a firm opinion on some of the effects. I know, or I, I you know, I strongly believe that the vaccines um, have hurt and killed a lot of people. But you know, the, the questions, um, you know, some of the deeper, darker questions are difficult. And it may even be that it was meant to be strong enough and just scary enough 
to keep us all focused on it while a new world banking network was being set up. But maybe these big leaders, you know, maybe even Putin, you know, this war in Ukraine looks stage managed in many ways. Maybe Putin, maybe Xi, maybe MBS even, maybe they all have some sort of an agreement with the DOD and maybe they're going to be stakeholders in the new global bank system. I have no idea. But I'm just I'm I'm trying to float hypotheses that that fit the data, you know, models that fit the data. But it's clear that it's it's as big as anything that that we've seen in our lifetimes as far as the world changing and you know maybe in hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the hypothesis that China has been growing so fast, uh, in large part due to its public banking system, and that you know by having a sort of a, a centrally uh, directed uh, way of creating money by loaning it for productive infrastructure projects, they are have, have been able to do sort of what Hitler did in the early 1930s and uh, turbocharge an economy uh, beyond what other economies can do when they are run by a parasitical private banking cabal that favors their friends and is geared towards a lot of casino speculation and things like that, non-productive kinds of activities that just bloat up a, an artificial financial sector that doesn't really produce much real value. The Chinese, with their 90% plus public banking, can make sure that their currency creation creates real value. So they're doing what, what Germany did in the 1930s. They're growing real fast, and they are indeed challenging the military banking complex of the West and specifically the U.S., and that that would be the reason why, um, you know, COVID would be a sort of a shot across the bow as, or maybe even it was, it could have been intended to harm China's economy and not blow back. That's the Ron Un's hypothesis. I, I one. do think that, it, that there is a shot to shake up the formation of BRICS. However, um, my, my view of China is very different from the Western media view. I think the Western media view, they want us to believe that China is this uh, giant technological juggernaut that is really competing with us financially, whereas I think a lot of it's air um, in the same way that I think, you know, 99.9% of the cryptocurrency, you know, descriptive sector is air. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not true that China has uh, always been able to invest um, in, you know, new things in a in such a productive way. They've had to, you know, they, they've created these entirely empty megacities and sometimes they've just had to blow them up, you know. Um, right, but they, they've you know, also that, got all kinds of, you know, they've got high-speed rail everywhere, and they're manufacturing huge amounts of real stuff, uh, unlike us. So, it, it, so uh, the high-speed rail, that, that is interesting. That That is a flaw of America more than it's a great success of, of uh, Asia. Um, I think that that's... Um, it's a weird thing to think about, but when you look at what are the, the high tech sectors of the world, you know, if, if you start listing them off in terms of what is most uh, profitable, which is usually identifying, you know, um, you know, bleeding edge technology, uh, China leads in almost none of them. Like you could go dozens down, like the top 100 sectors, and China might lead in like two of them. Um, the fact that China has soaked up um, so much manufacturing capacity, that tells us what China's economy is. They're a cheap of manufacture and we think of them as so high tech because we're told that every day by the media but i mean we're the ones who pulled out the chip makers right without you know western knowledge um it, it's taiwan making the good chips not china 
right? I mean, they are, you know, two generations, three generations behind. When we pulled our people out, maybe they're four generations behind, you know, current chip making technology, for instance. You know, they're... they're Hello, Matthew. I seem to have uh, lost the connection here. Hopefully it'll pop back. That's interesting. I don't think uh, Matthew Crawford was saying anything unduly sensitive. Can you hear me? Yeah, now you're back now. Yep. Okay, great. Um, well, I was just saying, you know, China China is more dependent on the West for you know the the things that can't be replaced. The U.S. could, for instance, rebuild manufacturing sector. Um, it, it's it's been able to pivot a certain amount to Mexico, and that was partially with the help of that gas pipeline, and pivot a little bit to Southeast Asia. It is true that we will lose some of the things that we could get you know, more easily made if we had all that Chinese labor. There's no doubt about that. But those are not the most valuable things in the world. You know, if, if the average American bought, you know, 22 instead of 24 articles of clothing a year, you know, is that really going to change, you know, the way the U.S. looks as a society? Not really. But losing that trade with China is devastating. Um, they do not produce much new technology. It is still true that the Western universities, in particular the U.S. universities, um, are where most you know great new achievements are are made in terms of things that will you know be worth investing in uh, in in so far as they will produce you know more output than input you know more dollars out than in. Um, and China China has a big problem in their banking sector. Um, you know, when you go to international banking, you, you don't see a lot of Chinese still. You know, you see a lot of Indians. Um, and, you know, it, uh, there's more finance knowledge in India, I think, partially because of the, the UK relationship. And, of course, London was the center of, of banking knowledge in the world for, for a good while. But, um, you know, the U.S. really is. Uh, and, you know, it, when a nation is under communism, it's actually really it takes a while to recover specifically that kind of knowledge knowledge of um, you know actual markets you, know, you can see that in Germany you know the East Germans still have not integrated well they can make straight A's in school all day long they can send geniuses to the university but they don't come out with the same sort of understanding of the the capitalist value of networks market value of networks um, capitalism is a tough word to use just because of the positive and negative connotations but you know they, they don't do markets as well you oppress people and you know, they lose it. It's, it's it's the dulling of the mind, you know, just like you see an animal farm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, in, in terms of your philosophy of, of, uh, of markets, um, I've always found, you know, I've been interested in, in some anthropological works that talk about the exchange, human exchange in throughout most of history has been primarily through gift economy. Uh, and, and you've you've talked about uh, the research about the number of people um, in in one's group uh, in various ways and, and sort of the limits of what was it two fifty is it, what what's the number so, so uh, the, the Dunbar's number Dunbar's is number, yeah, yeah. 150, but yeah, you know, people usually stretch yeah. it in principle right and and so historically it seems that most cultures have sort of within that. Uh, so there's one's own group or one's own society, the vast majority of goods and services trade by way of gift. And then the other main kind of economy is plunder or war. And the market economy is more a subset of the war economy than of the gift economy. That is that 
when one is basically pursuing you know ruthlessly one's own interests and not trusting the other party that you know what you end up with is something that looks more like war except by stealth and and one's wiles uh rather than direct violence and 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 so it it seems that successful market societies have found a way to uh, bring some of that uh, that market economy into something more like the gift economy of the of one's own tribe. Uh, Islam succeeded not so much by military conquest, although there was some of that in the early days in parts of the world, but through these extensive trade networks that worked by inculcating trust because the Muslim traders were relatively trustworthy over long distances. And so is that the kind of cultural factor you're talking about that gets lost under communism? You know, uh, that's certainly at least part of it. You know, when you have a trust network, um, then it is, you know, you can make transactions. And I I don't even care whether it's, you know, uh, a currency transaction, you know, currency based. I do think currency is a great technology if you can have something that is a good store of value and you can, you know, move it around and, and, you know, make it easier to exchange for items. Um, You know, it, it. it really is the gift economy at that point or, 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 you know, or a barter economy or close to it. Um, but when you have a good trust network, you need uh, the security that you must hire to retain uh, freedom of your labor is lower. Right. And this is part of why um, I call this like um, an outer Dunbar ring, right? Like if Dunbar's number is 150. Okay. Well, at some point we got to have societies of millions of people. How did that happen? I think it happened one step at a time. I think that there was legal technology. I think that there was, you know, um, religious technology. And I think that um, the reason the large religions of today are what they are is at least partially because they they expanded Dunbar levels of trust, Dunbar rings out to some outer ring such that you had a feeling of um, fair judiciality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that may have been more or less true per geography or per era for each religion, but at some point that was at least part of the recipe, right? Yeah, that, that makes good sense. And, and so what did China or Russia lose during their communist period then? Well, you know, I mean, it, the, the form of totalitarianism that um, I mean, I, I think we in the West we we live in a totalitarian society, but it's a different type than the totalitarianism of the East. The totalitarian of the East is all stick and little carrot, and you know that that's the animal farm story. And at the end of Animal Farm, um, you know you've got the pig who's making decisions still, uh, you know Napoleon, um, and but all the other animals they're so dulled that they don't even realize how they got to where they were, and literally Napoleon can go, you know what? Uh, we're renaming the farm. It's X. And you know what? It never was called Animal Farm. That's false history. And all the other and all the animals go, okay. And you know, they can barely remember, you know, they, they might not be able to remember yesterday, right? <clears throat> I, I think the dulling of the mind under so much trauma really is such that um it affects the way people understand history. And if you're not understanding history, you're probably not understanding your network very well. Interesting perspective. I th- I'm not sure I totally buy it. I know my experience with the people in Muslim countries uh, who talk about what it was like during the Cold War 
with the Americans and the Russians both sort of trying to move in and make friends and alliances, what I, what I generally heard was that the Americans tended to be less knowledgeable, uh, kind of shallow, and, you know, not very good at really getting to know the local culture and being interested in intellectual pursuits and intellectual exchanges and things like that. The Russians were, were, were much better. And that, you know, the pe people in, in under communism, because you kind of, you didn't really have to work productively for a living. So you could, if you wanted to, you could spend an awful lot of time reading and studying and talking and debating and practicing things that didn't require a lot of heavy investments, you know, for, uh, for your equipment. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think there's a paradox there. Yeah. I, I've heard this a lot of times. Um, and, and yet, you know, uh, like, you know, you go into the finance arena, you know, I didn't meet a whole lot of Russians in on wall street. Um, one of the things that, that I always wonder is how much you have leadership selection paradoxes on that level. And I, I like to think uh, to what happened in Hungary under communism. Uh, have you ever heard of the, um, the great mathematicians and physicists who were referred to as the aliens? Hmm, I don't remember them right now, but we, you, um, we only have two minutes, like, so we have to do compress this. Okay, one. okay. This guy, guys like Paul Erdos, but if you, you know, if you look it up for two generations, Hungary just produced an inordinate proportion of the world's great, um, great technical minds. And I think this happened because these are people who would have been their industry leaders or their leaders in, in, in all kinds of different ways. But under communism, if those people didn't want to be committing immoral acts as part of the communist hierarchy, what did they do? They went and studied math. Mm -hmm. And when that era was over, so too was their domination in the fields of mathematics and physics. Okay. Yeah. Par paradoxical, positive results from oppression. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. when Americans send uh, you know, military outposts out in the world, um, they're probably not sending their best minds. Russia was more likely to have people at that level who, you know, might have had 120, 130 IQs, but, you know, didn't have an outlet that was productive for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's what, you know, the, the culture also might put more or less value on you know working quote unquote productively, uh, and and would, might have different views of what's productive. Um, and for instance, the finance messing with uh, financial instruments, the the, the whole uh, speculative uh, sector seems in certain ways to be kind of non-productive. To you know, I, I still have a hard time uh, convincing myself that I do any productive work at all, except when I'm in my garden growing actual food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we'll have that conversation another day. We will because the, we hit the end know, of the hour this time. The financialization. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Matthew Crawford of Rounding the Earth Newsletter, one of the very best Substacks out there. Top of my list of ones I would highly recommend. Uh, uh, keep up the great work and and the, these these two pieces on these two critically important issues, and uh, especially that FTX thing, which you know really could be uh, a turning point historically. It's really really first rate work. Keep keep it up. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, take care. That's Matthew Crawford. I'm Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com. Same time, same channel. Back next week. See you then. Shalom.